0: We'll be looking at Hebrews 13, the end of the chapter this evening. Since most of you have turned to it already, we'll begin with a of prayer. Father, we come into your holy presence this evening grateful for so many things that you've given us, every one of which we are undeserving to receive. And we do receive them by faith with gratitude for your grace and mercy toward us. We thank you that you have given us life and sustained us in this world, that you take care of our temporal needs. We thank you that you have given us yourself and your own Son, that our eternal needs might be met as well. We thank you that not only have you given us your Son as our Savior, but you've given us of your Spirit to sustain us in our new lives as your people, to sustain us spiritually. To encourage us and guide us, to confirm us in righteousness. We thank you, Father, tonight for the scriptures of the Old and New Testament that you have deposited with us as your people. We thank you for the light they represent, the light that they cast upon our path and help us to walk. We thank you for the good news that they communicate to us, for the joy that we receive from them. We thank you above all tonight for the book of Hebrews that we've been studying for so long in this congregation, and thank you for its precious truths, and we ask that you would uh, truly drive them home to our hearts, that we would remember them and meditate upon them, that in so doing we'd be drawn closer to you, we might think more clearly and accurately about you, and we might see better how we should live our lives in faith before you and the glory you. We ask that you would bless us and this our last study, that we would gain from it, understand the book better because of it, for we thank Jesus. Name. Amen. Amen. Let's read the entirety of Hebrews 13 this evening to give us the context uh, for concluding study. Beginning at verse 1 then, the author says, Let love of the brethren continue. Forget not to show love unto strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels on ways. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, them that are ill-treated as being yourselves also in the body. Let marriage be had in honor among all, and let the dead be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Be free from the love of money, content with such things as you have, for himself hath said, I will in no wise fail thee, and neither will I in any wise forsake thee, so that with good courage we say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What shall man do unto me? Remember them that have the rule over you, men that spake unto you the word of God, and considering the issue of their life, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Be not carried away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not by meats, wherein they that occupy themselves were not profitable. We have an altar, whereof they have no right to eat that serve the tabernacle, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest, as an offering for sin, are burned outside the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. Let us therefore go forth unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we do not have here an abiding city, but we seek after the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of lips which make confession to his name. But to do good, and to share forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit to them, for they watch in behalf of your souls as they that shall give an account. That they may do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for them. Pray for us, for we are persuaded that we have a good conscience, desiring to live honorably in all things and I exhort you the more exceedingly to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. By the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, with the blood of an eternal covenant, even our Lord Jesus, make you perfect in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I exhort you, brothers, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written unto you in few words. Know you that our brother Timothy has been set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. And that's part of reading. last week uh, we considered the um, benediction that concludes the book of Hebrews, and I warned you at the beginning of the study that there was more theology packed into that benediction than I could probably handle in the short periods of our study, and I proved to be right about that. Um, We had this interesting expression, the God of peace, and we looked at how that's been used elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, The concept of the resurrection of Jesus Christ establishing um, well, his blood and his resurrection establishing the eternal covenant that was uh, prophesied in the Old Testament. Christ as the great and good shepherd of the sheep. And we are at the end of our lesson, and I just touched briefly on verse 21 of that benediction, because everything in verse 20 is meant simply to describe the one who is the source of the benefit that is prayed for and pronounced in verse 21. And we could study and just focus on theology of that description. It's, it's very meaningful. But all of that, you see, is just loading the gun. The trigger's not pulled until verse 21. The only he's saying is, this God that I'm talking about, this God of peace, who has a son to establish an eternal covenant, who is the great shepherd of the sheep and the rose of the dead, this God, he says, make you perfect in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to be the glory forever and ever. At the end of verse twenty one we have an ascription of glory, uh, and an ascription of eternal glory to Jesus Christ, which should remind us that the author of Hebrews, as the authors of all the New Testament books, took for granted, just in a conversational, easy way, took for granted the deity of Jesus Christ. To ascribe eternal glory in Onto something that is not God, he would have been very problematic to the theology of uh, any Old Testament saint. In the book of Romans, chapter 9, a similar ascription of glory to Jesus Christ is found, and he's described as God, blessed forever. Amen. And that is so problematic, the Romans 9 passage, so problematic for liberal scholars that you'll find, for instance, in the RSV, some of you uh, are using the RSV, you look at that, you'll notice that they have punctuated it so that it says uh, something to the effect uh, about Jesus Christ, period, and then God be blessed forever. Amen. Rather than Jesus Christ, who is God, blessed forever. Amen. The point being that uh, that ascription of eternal praise to um, any creature uh, would be out of place unless that uh, Jesus Christ is God himself. You wouldn't expect the author to speak this way. He does so in Hebrews saying that glory belongs to Christ eternally. Now, what he asks that God do through his Son Jesus Christ, the eternally blessed one, is make us perfect in every good thing to do His will. God wants maturity from His people. He wants us to be brought to perfection. Jesus uh, said that we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, the theme of uh, the Sermon on the Mount Chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, perfection is what we should be striving for. Uh, he follows two, one of two errors, it seems to me, about sanctification in the Christian Church. There are those who teach that uh, moral perfection is attainable, at least for periods of time. It's always funny how that's qualified. You can be morally perfect, some of these perfectionists will say, at least for a period, you know, like maybe two, three days, or you're really good maybe for a few weeks at a time, morally perfect. In the process, they lower the demands of God. Because moral perfection amounts to not consciously sinning against a known commandment, whereas the Bible describes sin as in our affections and our habits, even our unconscious disposition to respond in popular things and uh, So perfectionist, I don't think, have a very convincing case. But you see, the point is, in a church that teaches moral perfection is a possibility, you hear a lot of preaching that goes to people, pushes them towards them. And there's a lot of... Uh, allegedly, a lot of effort in that direction. Now the opposite problem is in churches such as our own that teach that moral perfection is not possible in this life, that we will not be perfected until we see Jesus Christ our Savior himself, people tend to say, oh, well, since we're not going to make it anyway, then so we don't need to be so adamant about pushing for it. But notice that the author of Hebrews, who is very conscious, of the foibles of this life, and the threat of apostasy, after all, look at chapter 6 and 10, read dreadful warnings about falling back and so forth, very conscious of that. Nevertheless, uh, he's praying that God, this God of peace, who established an eternal covenant through the resurrection and blood of his Son, this God, make you perfect. Another thing about sanctification we learned from this passage, that doing God's will uh, amounts to uh, being perfect in every good thing. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, we often focus on the doctrine of Scripture taught there. All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine and truth and correction. Instruction and righteousness. But you see, the end of that, is that we may be perfectly furnished to every good work, so that we'll be lacking in nothing when it comes to pleasing God. Sanctification is not a matter of simply performing certain religious rituals. Unfortunately, um, churches that emphasize Christian world view tend to de-emphasize Christian piety. It shouldn't be that way, but that does happen. Churches that emphasize personal piety tend to think that as long as we're reading our Bible every day and praying, going to church and evangelizing, things like this, that we are doing God's will. But we must learn to do God's will in everything. We must learn that Scripture gives us guidance for every good work. So that means the good work that we do on the job when we drive, and how we conduct ourselves in our families, and in our social relationships, and our political relationships, and our economic activity, and our recreational activity. and everything that we do, we may bring glory to God and please Him. And if we aren't striving for that, then we're not really doing His will. The author of Hebrews wants us to come to moral perfection in every good thing, doing God's will. There's another point about sanctification. Notice that a good work is defined by the will of God. That should be obvious. In fact, in our church, I think it probably is so obvious that it maybe doesn't need repeating. But there are a number of um, of Christians and Christian organizations and churches that tend to define good works not in terms of God's will, but of what seems good to us. Right? Uh, we have church traditions that develop, I and mean, we do in a society. Right now, during the Easter season, there's showing a lot of marks of religiosity around Easter that has nothing to do with God's will. Okay? So sanctification is um, a matter of the whole man doing the will of God. Next, the author tells us that when we do his will, It is God who works in us, that which is well-pleasing, in us And There's the paradox of sanctification. Is sanctification a matter of effort, or is it a matter of dependence? Sanctification a matter of my going out there and saying, I need to push harder for perfection, do better in this area of my life, do better in that area of my life, or is sanctification a matter of saying, I let go and I let God? Which is it? sitting there thinking false antithesis (laughs) pastor. Isn't that exactly what you were thinking? False antithesis. Logical fallacy. You don't have to choose between those two. Because you see, we do make efforts for perfection. The author is praying that we will, but he's also praying that God will do it in us. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You work it out. If that's all you read, you might get the idea. It's all on me. I've got to work out my salvation. And then he says, fourth, what? God who works in you, both to will and to do. He's good question. So you work hard. Why? Because God's working through you. We tend to think, no. See, we're really across the table from God, and that portion of the table that he takes as his own automatically subtracts that amount of the table from us. And since we're across the table or on a par with God, if He's doing the work, then we are And if we're doing the work, then He isn't. It's a matter that, you know, my plus must be His minus, and His plus must be my minus. So that is from the biblical perspective. God works in all. God works in us, and we must work completely. Because we're not across the table from God. We are not on a par with Him. God does work in us that we might work to show our moral perfection. And then one more reminder that all good works, if they to be well pleasing in God's sight, must be through Jesus Christ. This really repeats the doctrine that we've seen in this chapter already. Verse 15, Through Him let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God continually. Um... It's only through Christ that any of our efforts are acceptable in God's sight. John Calvin railed against uh, the Roman Catholic doctrine of satisfaction and merit. And one of the reasons he did is because the Bible teaches us that any good that we do is acceptable only through Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic doctrine teaches, and I'll try to be brief about this, that your pre-baptismal sins have been taken care of by the the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That that sacrifice satisfies God's justice with respect to pre-baptismal sins, but post-baptismal sins, sins committed after your baptism, are not entirely taken care of and satisfied, the justice of God is not satisfied, uh, by the work of Christ alone. Because now that you're baptized and you've been forgiven for those previous things, you need to show true contrition. You must show by your works that you merit the merit of Christ. All right, and so what do you do? You go to the priest. And the priest lays on you a certain set of uh, ritual or uh, ethical acts that are your penance to show true contrition. But now, if you're going to really be contrite for all those sins you commit, as Martin Luther knew, uh, it it would just take you you forever to to work off those things and to show God you really were sorry for your sins. And so what happens is you need some help. Now, you're going to get this help because God is merciful toward his people. For those who are baptized, you're going to go to purgatory and uh, have enough time finally to work off this... this, uh, the debt that you owe to satisfy God's justice. Now, some people don't want to go to purgatory because that's not really a place to spend, you know, 30,000, 40,000 years of eternity. And so what the church has is a convenient way of helping them. Certain saints have not only done their own penance, but they have performed works of supererogation. Not only have they balanced their own moral account in God's sight, they've got an excessive merit. Now what happens when those saints die? Well, God can't leave the merit on the books like that, and so he collects the merit of the saints, especially the works of nation, and deposits it with the church, which is conveniently enough at the disposal of the Pope that is the vicar of Christ on earth. And the Pope, through his bishops, then will dispense to you the merit of the saints for a price. And so you give a certain amount of money to build uh, St. Peter's and some of the merit of the saints will come to you, or, if you wish, for your dead mother, who is now suffering in purgatory, and God will remit part of that. Now this whole ugly scheme, you see, comes crumbling down though on the one observation that none of us can do a good work in and of ourselves except for the God. Come to think about that. I cannot supplement the merit of Christ if the only merit in my works comes from Christ in the first place. You see how powerful this passage is then, because the author says, uh, May the God of peace make you perfect in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ. Since I can only please God through Jesus Christ, I can never supplement the work of Jesus Christ. I can only glorify the work of Jesus Christ. I can only submit to the work of Jesus Christ. I can only show that by His grace He works in me. And so, there is no merit in what I do. There is no super in what I do or what anyone does. And uh, I commend to you as probably uh, about as stirring a passage in the instances. As you'll find, Calvin's discussion of this whole question of satisfaction and works of supererogation, and his whole point is the only merit that we have is Jesus Christ. Even our good works are accepted to God only through Jesus Christ. Okay. Any questions about verse twenty-one? I promised I would cover that tonight and make up for my deficiency last week. There's quite a document of sanctification contained just there. <laughs> <in> <end. laughs> Yes, within the instances. Telling us a sustained discussion of the error of the Roman Catholics and the question of narrow. How does the Roman um, balance well, currently available? <laughs> <laughs> um, That's one of the questions that the Reformers were happy to ridicule the Pope with, and that is, is there any objective check on what he says the balance in the Church's account is for distributing this? And you get very sarcastic remarks about that, and I wish I could remember one. But they're along the same lines as Calvin and Luther both have quips uh, to the effect that if all of the splinters of the cross were gathered together, you could build Noah's Ark and you know, stuff like that. I mean, how does the Pope know how much merit is available, and what he knows it know by special revelations from God? And you know, if he does a special revelation, how do we know that he does? And this the whole epistemological question of church tradition. And scriptural authority, solar scriptural, into a uh, picture. I know okay? Uh, um, Why do you distinguish between penance and demanding the truth of repentance? Well, one of the easiest ways to distinguish the Roman Catholic doctrine of penance from the Biblical view that fruit of repentance is called for is to remember that penance is meritorious. And the fruit of repentance that is a sultry it is not meritorious it is by a pure description fruit of god's grace the of god is worked in us and if we truly are sorry for our sins, then there's something that grows from that um, but that is not the basis uh, that is not the soil out of which salvation grows it is the fruit of salvation whereas penance is part of the ground of our uh, satisfying god's justice <laughs> We can breathe the Holy Spirit. Uh, can we also please the Holy Spirit, and how does this relate to Mary? Uh The answer to the first part of the question is yes, we can please the Holy Spirit, I and mean, it wouldn't make any sense to say we can grieve the Spirit. Because, of course, there's nothing we could ever do that would make the Spirit happy. Um, but now, how does this relate to merit? Well, I think I just want to repeat in another way what I've answered him when. I please the Holy Spirit, and I wish I did more often. But when I please the Holy Spirit, there's only God working in me that which means well pleasing in his sight. And so God gets pleasure out of working through me his good will. So I don't turn around and say, Well now God since I please you, or Holy Spirit since I please you, I mean there must be something in you that's worthwhile when I tell you if all the praise belong to you. So in a sense God gets double pleasure. I mean, he he gives he gets pleasure and therefore is praised by what I have done that is right, but he also gets it because I turn around and say, but I don't owe this to myself, I owe it to you. And so when everything that God does through me, if I have the right attitude, you really gets the blessing. what Okay, let's um, see if we can finish up the epistle now in the remaining moments here. I skipped verses 18 and 19 last week because, especially verse 19, uh, speaks of the historical circumstances of the book, as do verses 22 through 25, and so we'll take them as a unit, even though they are interrupted here by the uh, benediction of the study. Verse 18 says, Pray for us, for we are persuaded that we have a good conscience desiring to live honorably in all things. Now, the very fact that the author requests prayer from these people says something about his confidence in their Christian character, doesn't it? You don't ordinarily walk up to somebody you consider to be apostate or pagan or backslidden and say, pray, pray for them. You would tend to say a unique prayer. But the author, and the reason I'm pointing the is many people have thought the author has come down very hard on them in chapters 6 and 10 in a special way, has accused uh, them of apostasy. And I would say he has warned them of the very real possibility of apostasy, and that they need to persevere in their Christian lives. But he has confidence in them. In fact, he says at one point, we are persuaded of better things about you than what I've just described and what I've warned against." And so we see it again here when he says pray for us, his confidence. The author testifies that his stern admonitions has sprung from the desire to act honorably and to act in good conscience. He has not written to them out of hostility, nor has He written to them out of a sense of self-importance. It'd be easy for those who don't like the author to cast that aspersion upon and Say, no, you're really quite harsh. You don't love us. You don't, you don't do these things because you really care for us you're just doing this because you want to pump up your own situation, your own authority, your own importance. And the author testifies that he has a good conscience, actually we are persuaded that we have a good conscience, desiring to live honorably in all things. I wish more pastors took that into account when they preached. Because I am afraid, not only because I see the temptation in my own life, and I'll to that sin, but because I think a lot of people give in to that pervasively, that's why the pulpits of our land are so lynchish and weak and watered down, Just because pastors are afraid that if they really lay it on the line, people are going to say, you don't know, like this, you know, and you know, cut their paycheck or stop coming to church or do other sorts of things about it. and wouldn't get forward or wouldn't the best things happen. The author here says, but I need to live a good conscience before God. I need to live honorably before men and God in what I've said to you. And it's only out of a desire to please God that I have said what I have said. Paul um, himself requested prayer in 2 Corinthians from the uh, Corinthian believers and testified to his own sincerity. If you're knowledgeable of the New Testament, you're aware of this. 2 Corinthians is a very hard-hitting book. Paul has some very stringent things to say about those who are detracted from his apostolic authority. So look at 2 Corinthians 1, verses 11 and 12. i give an example here. You also help them together on our behalf by your supplication of prayer that for the gift bestowed upon us by means of many, thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf. For our glorying is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and sincerity of God, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we behave ourselves in the world, and more abundantly, to you. He says, we need your supplications for us. We testify before God. in all sincerity. We act out of holiness in regard for God. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, notice how he says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. But by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul says, my ministry is open and it's above board. You look at it. Before God and before man, I've acted in good conscience, with sincerity. One other remark about Hebrews 13, 18. Notice the plural, we. I haven't resolved in my own mind how to come down on that. It is possible that this is the authorial plural. That is, the author speaking with many voices in the word, we. It's also possible that he's speaking out of the context of a Christian community. And so though he is the spokesman, that community is listening and sending this exhortation as well as grieving. Because he's going to come down and say some things about others who are sending grieving. It's possible that he could take it that way. And then in verse 19, the author especially urges this prayer for himself in order that he would be restored to the recipients of the letter. And most of your translations will say sooner, but I'm convinced that the comparative in the Greek is not intended in a comparative sense. We sometimes have that. Comparatives Mm -hmm. and superlatives in Greek sometimes um, are frozen forms and really don't have a comparative or superlative sense. It may well be that the author is just saying, pray for me that I'll be restored to you soon." Now, if, if it is sooner, and of course, some people say, see, that shows that if they prayed harder, then he would come sooner. And I'm not sure if that's going to be You could translate it in the near future. Pray for me, that I'll be restored to you in the near future. That, again, points to his love for the readers, doesn't it? He doesn't want to be separated from them. He wants to be restored to them. It also points to the fact that prayer is expected to change things. And if the author, with the confidence in the sovereignty of God, does not say, don't bother to pray, because there's nothing you can do about it. He says, pray that I might be restored to you soon. The effect of your prayers will be that I'll be restored to you. God predestines one thing, and then we pray, and then God changes what He's predestined. No. Good. Okay. No one believes that, so we can move on. It. Why not? Why not? I mean, if we pray, and then he'll be restored soon to them. Because God is okay. That's right. God predestines not only the end that is accomplished; he predestines the means to that end. And though it may not be totally understandable to us, one of the means for. The end of restoring him to them was that prayer and so he calls on them to exercise that now god may have predestined that uh, mr x out here is going to become a christian but if he's predestined that mr x is going to become a christian he also predestined that mr y is going to testify to mr x or give him a bible or take him to church or something so that the means are there whereby mr x can confess faith in jesus christ and we just don't have people walking around to become Christians, just like that. God predestines the end, and he predestines the means to the end. And one of the means that God uses to bring about things in this world is prayer. And prayer does change things. It doesn't change God's decree of will, but it changes the way things are going as we see them. Okay, doctor tells you, the patient looks really bad. If he continues like this, he probably won't last for morning. And then you pray, and the patient recovers. Now, from the way we saw things and what we should expect from secondary causes, the patient would have died. morning. prayer changed things. But it didn't change God's mind. It just was the agency by which God's plan to restore that patient was brought about. And why would He do that? Well, I would suggest because He gets greater glory from that. Because we learn, we learn to, you know supplicate his throne and to submit into and to his will and to acknowledge that every good thing comes from his hand when we pray. okay something about the setting of the book should be obvious to you from verse 19 actually four things we learned that the author was once associated with the readers don't we? because he says I want to be restored to you and at some time he was with them I would suggest that this is only probable. i suggest he was once a leader in this Christian community, because he's going to go on to give special greetings to believers. He's real concerned that they honor their leaders, and he speaks as though he's a leader, and he was with them once. We know that Secondly, he's not with them now. He's in a different location for some reason. Thirdly, he's being prevented by something from returning to them. Fourthly, he would like to return to them and hopes to do so. Now, you can fill in the missing, for some reason, questions. Why is it he can't come right now? Where is he, and why is he there? Later, he's going to talk about Timothy being set at liberty. This is all probability stuff, but I would suggest that perhaps the reason he can't return is maybe he's not at liberty. Maybe he's under some kind of house arrest. Uh, Something is preventing him from returning to them. But he does hope that he'll be able to and that Timothy will be uh, coming to him. Look at verse 22. But I exhort you, brothers, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written unto you in few words. One of my favorite verses from the New Testament. Because he writes one of the longest epistles in the New Testament and says, I only wrote to you in a few words. I was just very brief about this." That's why I feel it when I'm preaching, you know. (laughs) You may think this went for an hour and 15 minutes, but I thought I was being brief. The author... um, the author is being brief, uh, realistically, because, um, for instance, in chapter I don't understand, 9, is it, uh, verse 5, in chapter 9, he talks about um, how he could go on, you know. There's, there's certainly more that we can explicate from the old covenant, more detail he can give, but he wants to remember the purpose of his writing and so he, he gets on to the practical exhortation. these verses 22 through 25 following as they do the uh, very formal benediction might perhaps uh, be a postscript that he wrote in his own hand we don't know if the author of Hebrews used in emmanuensis or secretary but if he did he could have appended these last words in his own writing He exhorts the readers to bear with the word he has sent them, and he calls it a word of exhortation. He has been dogmatic, and he's been stern with them, but his aim has been strengthening and encouragement. He's saying, I haven't been cold, I've been firm. There's a difference. Um, The expression word of exhortation is used in Acts 13 for a sermon of Paul's. Paul gave them a word of exhortation, that has led some people to suggest that the form of Hebrews, the kind of literary form, that the literary form is really that of a transcribed or uh, maybe it wasn't actually delivered as a sermon, but it's a sermon or a homily written down for people at some distance, rather than in the form of an epistle. And in support of that, I tend to lean in that direction myself, you notice that the beginning of Hebrews does not have um, an opening similar to the Pauline epistles, where it says, from Paul to the saints in Corinth, or whatever it may be. There are no introductory formulas like the letter. It just starts right in with theology. God having a role about da out of us. So it could well be that this is a theological homily that the author has written out, and has sent to them, and then at the end he adds these personal remarks making it like an epistle, but not an epistle in form really. Notice he calls them brethren again, he has called them brothers in chapter 3 verses 1 and 12, and chapter 10 verse 19, and as I've already said, he doesn't think he's written at any inordinate length, he says I've written briefly to you my kind of guy. <laughs> Verse 23. Know you that our brother Timothy has been set at liberty with whom if he comes shortly I will see you. was Timothy? i whole lesson on Timothy's life. Somebody tell me this briefly. What do you know about Timothy? in the New Testament. <coughs> he was a pastor, probably Paul's right hand man, as a matter of fact. Luke and Timothy traveled with. Paul as much as anybody we see in the New Testament. There are others, of course, but Timothy was especially close to Paul, and there's some indication that Timothy owed his salvation to Paul, humanly speaking. He is uh, considered Paul's son in the faith. And uh, Timothy was used by Paul as his own emissary in many cases. I still remember that passage in Philippians where Paul's concerned he's writing from prison in Rome, to the Philippians and they're having trouble in their congregation and he says he has no one else to send to them except Timothy because everyone else cares for his own things rather than the things of the Lord. Timothy is an honorable one. He apparently was a compassionate, kind individual associated with Paul. He was a pastor in Ephesus. If you look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2 for instance uh, or verse 3 I think it is Paul indicates that he has left Timothy in Ephesus which makes Ephesus, of course, the church in the New Testament which received more letters than any other, because Ephesus received a letter from Paul, Ephesus received a letter from John, remember, the letters from the seven epistles to the seven, epistles, to seven churches, in Revelation chapter 2, and then Paul wrote to Timothy as the pastor of Ephesus, 1 Timothy and, uh, allegedly, Second Timothy too, so there are four letters in the New Testament, four it to Timothy, or the church in Ephesus where Timothy was. Apparently, Timothy was well known <coughs> to the people reading this letter. <coughs> he calls Timothy our brother, and he gives them some welcome news about Timothy. Timothy has been released from some kind of custody, presumably on account of his Christian testimony and work. But Timothy is not with... Him writer of this epistle. He's somewhere else, and the writer expects Timothy to join him in the near future, and if he does so soon enough, then the writer hopes that they together, Timothy and the writer, will rejoin the readers. Well, if you like, New Testament the detective work, there's no idea. Well, I'll tell you, that leaves the door open for a lot of speculation. What's going on here? Is it that the two of them, maybe Paul is dead at this point,
1: Because
0: we know this is the second generation Christian who's writing this epistle. It may be that Timothy took up with whoever the author of this epistle is. They both were doing their work and got in prison. Timothy in a different place from him. Timothy's now been released. The author thinks in the near future he will be. But it's also tenuous. Can't say for sure. We just know for some reason the author can't move about as he wants. And we know that Timothy's been released. And he hopes that together they will come back. To the people uh, to whom he is writing. verse 24 salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints the special attention and salutation given to the leaders may suggest that the author was once one of them and the emphasis upon the word all salute all them that have the rule over you has led some to infer that there were there was probably divided loyalties in the congregation or partial submission on the part of the readers that uh, some people submitted to these elders and some people submitted to these and the author says salute all of them you need to be subject to your whole session as it were and yet the greeting is not meant to be an elitist thing like these elders are in a different category he not only salutes all of the of the rule but all the saints as well it's intended for the whole congregation so he says greetings from those of italy or could be translated those from italy and that ambiguity led to all sorts of uh, warfare between the commentators as to what that means because you have to consider it this means that there are people from italy who are sending greetings mean italian people are sending greetings now Are they Italian people in Italy sending greetings, in which case this is a letter that originates in Italy, maybe Rome going elsewhere? Or are these greetings from people who are Italian by extraction, but they're out of Italy with the author, sending greetings back now to where the epistles is being sent, namely to Italy. You can take it either way. And so, um, as some commentators have said, the best thing to do probably is to keep it ambiguous Um, the Italians salute you whatever that may mean I tend to think that this is being written to uh, a Hebrew Christian community in Italy but I would not want to rest uh, my convictions um, on this alone because you you really couldn't go anywhere verse 25 the the final benediction I am going to reach the end of the book tonight it's the same benediction used by Paul in Titus 3:1, by the way grace be with you all. Grace is an important concept in this epistle. Let's just review that real quickly. Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we behold him who hath been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste of death for every man. Chapter 4, verse 16. Let us therefore draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need chapter 13 verse 9 be not carried away by divers and strange teachings for it is good that the heart be established by grace not by meats wherein they that occupy themselves were not profited the grace of god is that motivation that lies behind the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our salvation. It's the grace of God that enables us to go to the throne of grace and to get help in time of need. It's the grace of God that strengthens our hearts in the Christian life. It's appropriate, therefore, to be authorized by pronouncing grace upon his hearers. May the grace of God be with you all. It is this grace which not only introduces us to salvation, but enables us to persevere in salvation as well. We mustn't ever get the idea that uh, we are justified by grace and that we are sanctified by our own efforts. We are justified by grace and we are sanctified by grace and (laughs) God willing the day is coming when we will be glorified by grace as well. So the concluding note of the book of Hebrews for all of its stern exhortations is the note of grace. Do you have any questions about tonight's lesson or the book of Hebrews in general that I can answer for you? If I can, I'll try. Bob? This is a selfish one, it back to the I wasn't here. What is your opinion on the larger Yes, and the tapes are available for those early lessons so you can get more detail. But. Um, bottom line, I do not believe we know who wrote the book. I don't think we can identify any particular um, author or authorist, as some people uh, would argue. Um, we do know that the author was familiar with Timothy, You just saw that tonight. And we do know that he's a second-generation Christian, in which case he's not the Apostle Paul. Some of your Bibles will say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews, actually, in the, in the title but Paul would never have said that um, that he was a second-generation believer. Remember, Paul says he was born out of season, as it were. but uh, Paul considered himself not one whoop behind the other apostles. Yet this author say, clearly says earlier in the epistle that um, he's a second-generation believer. My conclusion. The one with him? Any other questions? Concerning the fact that there is no um, salutation at the beginning of the book, do you think that it's possible that the book could be missing? Because in every other epistle we see some sort of salutation or some sort of <coughs> introduction and not just, you know, start with the gun, so to speak. Well, I have a, an a priori conviction about the word of God that would lead me not to hold to that conclusion but because it's a priori, I couldn't say to another New Testament scholar automatically that's impossible, but because my view is that God has preserved his word for us in all generations, I think the form in which we received the book is uh, basically the form in which God intended it. And I would rather argue that instead of missing the opening salutation, there was no salutation, and the author launches out right into a treatise because he's writing a word of exhortation. He's writing like that a sermon for his readers and it has epistolary characteristics in that he exhorts them and the end sends greetings and so forth. But he begins uh, making it very clear, I want to get going on theology here, not just the personal letter. And shown to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, and shown to us through the work of your Spirit in bringing us to salvation, keeping us in the realm of salvation, and working through us as saved people to bring glory to your name and to do good works. We thank you for being so gracious and merciful to us. We ask that you would keep that grace constantly before our minds as we live our lives, remember with humility who we are where we are and why we are here, also to entrust ourselves more fully to you know that we can count on you to meet every one of our needs and to strengthen us for good work that you would be receiving great glory for our lives. We thank you again for this precious book and your holy word that we have received. We do ask, Lord, that you would keep us from having just a and inspector's attitude toward it where we dissect it at a distance and, and understand how uh, the readers may have needed to hear these words. Lord, help us to be addressed by the book directly that so we might know that you are speaking to us very intimately and personally, that this word of exhortation is intended for your people of all ages, including ourselves. We pray that we would receive the stern warnings and admonition of this book in good faith that we have open ears and open hearts, that we would respond obediently to you, that we would not be tempted to fall away from the faith and to go after diverse and strange teachings, that we would stay true to the apostolic deposit that has been given to us. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us not only faithful in our doctrine, but faithful in our lives as well, that we would show by our obedience to you that we... We really do believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior, and we really are born again by the Spirit, and that your Word truly is our God. We thank you for the many blessings we enjoy as your people. We thank you that we've had this time, not only this evening, but over the last few years, to study this book. We pray that you will keep its truths before us. In Jesus' name and for the sake, Amen. amen.